Well, good morning, church family here in Danville and also in Burlington. So I want to say welcome. It's a privilege to be here with you today. And first things first, the baptisms tonight are back at Lake Geode, okay? So that's kind of exciting. So the DNR, they did some tests this week, and it looks really clear, and they gave it two thumbs up, said, it's good to go. You guys do baptism. So we're going to do a baptism, 6.30 tonight. I hope to see you there. It's going to be an awesome celebration. So... Now, I want to start off our time by giving you a little insight into my childhood and how often I got disciplined, okay? So, more so than any of my brothers or my little sister, for sure, as a little guy, I got spanked more than any of them combined, that's for sure, okay? And see, this is not an opportunity to throw shade on my parents, okay? They did a great job. They did the very best they could because I was terrible, Seriously, I was a little rebel. My poor mom. Seriously, mom, I'm sorry. Um, no, I was terrible. And so I needed spanked a lot. That was the discipline that was needed. And but here's what's funny. Now, me and my wife, Olivia, we have these four little rebels that live in our house. So what goes around comes around, right? And here's a picture of them right here. So this is us at a family camp this summer. We went there on vacation. So we were supposed to dress up like we were camping. And then we have a ladybug too. Um, So anyways, but there's the rebels right there. And the baby, she doesn't look like she's a rebel yet, but she'll show her true colors before too long. We know it, okay? And no, the reason I say all of this um, is because, and I'm talking about discipline, is because our passage today, it's all about the discipline of God being carried out on a rebel named King David. So far in our No King But Jesus series, we have seen David on the rise, for sure, we saw David rise, and then the last two weeks, we've seen David fall. We've seen the fall. So if you think about his sin with Bathsheba, as I was kind of thinking about this last week, I thought, you know, really David, in one foul swoop, basically broke like seven of the Ten Commandments, all right? That's basically what happened during that, that whole ordeal. So if you picture an action film when like the helicopter gets shut down, by the bazooka, you know, the rocket launcher, and then it's spinning and spiraling down and spiraling down, and then it crashes, and then explodes, and then maybe explodes again. That's David. That's what we've seen the last two weeks. That's David. And because of this rebellion, God is going to bring his discipline into David's life. But even though he's going to bring some discipline, what we're going to discover today as we read through this passage, in light of all of Scripture we actually see this as a good discipline. See, discipline's not the end goal. It's not like, I did, you know, David did something wrong, I gotta discipline him, there's the discipline. No, discipline's not the end goal, but it's rather the means to a greater end, and that greater end is transformation. God wants to bring a change in David. God wants to transform David. And that's exactly what we're gonna see today. And this is also good news for, also good news for us, because God wants to do the same in our life if we will let him because we are all gonna experience God's discipline at some point in our life. We already have, we're going to in the future. And if we let him work his discipline in our life and work that purpose out, we're going to see a change. That's what God wants to do in us. So I've divided this sermon into three sections. Um, So the Old Testament term for discipline is almost always the rod, you know, the rod of God. So I've got three sections here. God's rod revealed and we actually saw that last week where it's, it was pronounced. Here's what's going to happen. I'm revealing to you the rod. Here's what's gonna take place, Dave, in your life. And then God's rod released 
on David. And there's a part one and a part two of that. And then finally, we're going to see God's rod resolved. It's, there's going to be a conclusion. The end is going to, um, the means are going to be brought about, and that's transformation. So God's rod is going to be revealed, and then God's rod is going to be released, part one, part two, and then God's rod is going to be resolved. So let's start off with God's rod revealed. If you were here last week, you remember this, but just to refresh us if we weren't, um, and if you were here, it's just a good refresher anyway. So 2 Samuel chapter 12, that's where Pastor Chris was at, and God rebukes David through Nathan the prophet, and I want to just read this again, verses 9 through 12. Here's what God's rod, here's how it's revealed. Here's what's going to happen. It's going to be up on the screen, but you can also follow along in your Bibles. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. So in the sight of this son, in broad daylight, out in public. Verse 12, for you, for, you did in, for you did it secretly, excuse me, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. So basically, God is saying, to, he's saying, David, what you did is coming back to bite you hard. It's coming back to bite you. Just like you used the sword against Uriah, the sword's never gonna depart from your house. The sword meaning the violence that comes from the sword, bloodshed. And then secondly, what you did secretly, taking someone else's wife, someone else is gonna do that to you publicly. Somebody's gonna do that to you publicly. So there's these two parts. In God's words, here in chapter 12, it's like typing in the coordinates to a destination on your GPS, or no one has a GPS anymore, so your phone, on Maps or Waze, Google Maps. You type in the destination, and then you hit go, and then it starts routing you exactly where you need to go to the desired destination. And so here, chapter 12, 10 through 12, these are the coordinates, and chapters 13 through chapter 20 is largely the route to get there, to the final destination of God's rod. All right, before we jump in, there's a couple more things I just want to say. We're surveying eight chapters today, so there's no way I can preach verse by verse through eight chapters. You wouldn't want me to do that. We'd be here until four o'clock. Not going to happen, okay? So I'm going to be largely summarizing the story for us here. And then secondly, just so we don't get lost, there's a lot of different characters in this story, kind of back and forth that come in and out. If you were on the reading plan, you've read this. But there's just basically two main characters that we need to keep track of, and that's David King David, and then his power-ravenous son, Absalom. His third-born son, he's the other main character in the story, all right? So let's start off here with God's rod being released, part one. Here's how it, how it gears up. Absalom has a full sister named Tamar, full-blood sister named Tamar, and the text says she's very beautiful. And Tamar gets lured into this situation with one of her half-brothers named Amnon, who becomes irrational because he wants to sleep with her so bad, okay? He's just so attracted to her, so infatuated, he wants to sleep with his half-sister. And I know this is weird, but that's what the Bible says, okay? 
So eventually, through pretending to be sick, um, he's not actually sick, he pretends to be sick, he isolates her, takes advantage of Tamar, and he ends up raping her. But not only that, as soon as it's over, he throws her out and begins to hate her. So what happened, the, the first part was messed up, and then the second part is so much worse. And this leads to Tamar living out the rest of her life as a childless widow. So this is completely devastating. This is horrible. And then after this, Absalom, Tamar's full brother, he doesn't really retaliate against Amnon right away, even though he's upset about it. He just kind of gives him the silent treatment, cold shoulder for about two years. And then he invites Amnon and all of his other brothers, all of David's sons combined, to the sheep shearing party. So I don't know if anybody's ever been to a sheep shearing party. We're in Southeast Iowa, you know, West Central Illinois. Like, there's probably a few of us, I'm sure. I've never been to a sheep shearing party, but that's what he does. It invites everybody, hey, come up to this sheep shearing party with me. And that night, they're in the tent, and they're kind of having a fun time. And as Amnon gets a little buzzed up on wine, Absalom orders his servants to go stab him in the back and kill him. And so that's what they do. And just a side note here, if I was going to murder somebody, which I have no plans of doing, by the way, okay? But if I was, I would never do it at a party in front of all my other brothers, okay, in public. That just sounds like an idiot idea, okay? But that's what Absalom does. And so you can probably guess what happens next. All the brothers flee, and they all get on their own mule, and they all run different directions. And word gets back to David at first, and there's a false report that all of his sons have died. And then his other sons start trickling in. He realizes it was just Amnon that died because Absalom killed him. And the text says that David and his sons and all of his servants, they all wept bitterly. So, whenever you think your family is a mess, guess again, David has you beat, okay? David has us all beat here with this fiasco. This is a complete and utter disaster. But just think about this for a second. The irony here is that David's sons do exactly what he did back in chapter 11, they do the exact, same, the exact same thing David did. Like father, like son. Amnon takes what is forbidden. You're not supposed to have your sister. You're not supposed to sleep with your sister, okay? David took someone that was forbidden. You're not supposed to have someone else's wife. So there's this lustful passion in this, um, that takes place. And then Absalom, he takes things into his own hands by murdering somebody. So you have this horrible uh, sexual violation, and then you have murder. Lust, grievous sexual sin, murder. Does that sound familiar? Ring any bells? Does that, who's that sound like? The apples don't fall very far from the tree, do they? And remember, this is only part one of the discipline so far. So spank one has passed, but spank number two is coming, okay? So Absalom, he flees and he goes to Geshur, this place. It's actually where his grandpa lives, so his mom's dad, and he's there for three years. And then Joab comes along. Joab is uh, David's military general, and he kind of makes up this weird, you know, uh, he doesn't make up a story. He, he tries to fabricate this way to confront David, kind of like Nathan the prophet would, but Joab's not Nathan the prophet to try to get Absalom to come back and to be restored. And I don't really know why he does this, but his plan kind of works. And eventually Absalom comes back 
And then it's another two years he's in Jerusalem and David doesn't really talk to him. And then finally he gets brought in and David basically pardons him and he kisses him and he kind of like, he's, they're supposed to be restored, all right? And so it seems like everything's okay now. But not until we read chapter 15. So the beginning of 15, it says right away after Absalom is restored, Absalom gets a chariot and some horses and kind of this group of henchmen and he starts to go out to the city gate every single morning. And the city gate in uh, ancient Israel at Jerusalem would have been like Town Hall, would have been like Wall Street, Capitol Hill. It's where all the business took place in Israel. All the decisions were made, the disputes were solved. And so Absalom goes out there and he starts to talk to everybody that's coming to the city gate, kind of like he's in the place of his father, David. And he does this like any true politician would do. He doesn't tell them what they need to hear. He just schmoozes everybody and tells them what they want to hear. So the text says that he stole the hearts of the men of Israel. And he did this for four years straight. So four years straight, he's going out to the city gate, the place of influence, the place where decisions are made, standing in the place of his father, David. And he says it stole all the hearts of the men of Israel. So this long accumulated influence that Absalom uh, starts to have, it eventually leads to the point where he raises a coup against his father and against his kingship. So if you're young in the room, you know what a coup is. A coup is where there's this government takeover that's illegal, or it's just a group of people that take over the current people in charge and overthrow them. That's what a coup is. And so that's what Absalom does. And Absalom, he also recruits one of David's wisest advisors, this guy named Ahithophel. So Ahithophel is this guy that David always went to for guidance, and he was really wise, and now Absalom's got him on his team. He's recruited him to the dark side. And Ahithophel, it sounds like an over-counter drug or something, you know? Like an, it, Ahithophel, all right. I've never met an Ahithophel in my life, but here's one in the Bible, okay? Anyways, he gets this guy, and that's not good news either, because um, this David's wisest advisor, and he's with his son as the, the coup is ensuing. So this is interesting. Chapter 15, verse 12 says, the conspiracy grew strong and the people with Absalom kept increasing. The conspiracy is growing stronger and the people under Absalom's rule, under his influence, they keep increasing. So Absalom becomes so strong that when the word gets back to David, back in Jerusalem, he and all those loyal to him they just have to flee Jerusalem because they know they're outnumbered and overpowered. There's just no way. Once they realize what's taking place, David knows he's got to leave. And so he only leaves behind 10 concubines in Jerusalem from his company to take care of the palace. So real quick, concubines in David's time, these were wives of his, but of a lesser status, okay? So he leaves behind these 10 wives of lesser status just to kind of keep the palace swept and clean. And everybody else that's loyal to him, they flee and they leave. And now here's where the rod part two finally lands, okay? Chapter 16 through 17, shortly after Absalom enters the capital city and through guidance from his advisor, Ahithophel, Absalom sets up a tent on the roof of his father's palace in broad daylight and he has sex with all 10 of David's concubines who are left to keep the house. God's rod part two has landed. 
we have reached our final destination revealed back in chapter 12, verses 10 and 12. Absalom's coup is inaugurated with a disgusting public display of sex and power. Basically, Absalom's letting everyone know, any bridges with, with dad, they're burnt. I'm the guy now. So first was the sword, and now this. David took someone else's wife secretly. God said, someone else is gonna take your wives publicly. That's exactly what happened. In front of all Israel to see. And now I know what you're thinking, or at least I know what I was thinking when I first read this, okay? This is messed up, okay? (laughs) This whole thing, this whole string of events is messed up from Amnon and Tamar to the murder to this This is so messed up, okay? And if you're thinking this right now, you're right. You're right. So welcome to reading all parts of the Bible and not just the fluffy stuff that's on Hobby Lobby decorations, okay? This is the real Bible right here. This is it, okay? See, the Bible is the most realistic, down-to-earth and messy book I think I know of, and that's because it's full of sinners that are in constant rebellion against the God, against God and his desire for them. See, the Bible is not a book full of a bunch of good people doing good stuff, okay? The Bible is a book full of a bunch of broken, sinful people who are in desperate, desperate need of someone to save them. That's what the Bible's about. And we see that right here. You know, God would have every reason to wipe all of us off the face of the earth in light of stuff like this and stuff that you and I do in our lives. And just when it seems like there's nothing redeemable about any of this, because I was scratching my head with this when I first started reading this passage, I was like, oh, wow, thanks, Pastor Chris, for assigning me this. (laughs) No, just when we think there's nothing redeemable about this, see, God's discipline, it's a strong reality, but God's promises, they're a stronger reality. God's discipline's a strong reality, but God's promises are a stronger reality. And here's what I mean by that. God... Because of David's sin, God pronounces this discipline over David in chapter 12. And so that has to happen, and that did just happen. But remember, God made a promise to David back in chapter 7 when he said, David, you're anointed king, and you're always, as long as you're alive, you're going to be the king. You're my chosen, appointed king. And so it's not time for your reign to be done yet. So David, David's a dummy but he's still God's chosen chosen and appointed king. Are you with me? And so that's bad news for Absalom because Absalom hasn't just raised his hand against any old king in Israel. He's raised his hand against God's chosen and anointed king. Even though he's a dummy, his chosen and anointed king, that's David. And so you can probably assume what's gonna happen next. In light of this reality, Eventually some battling ensues and God isolates Absalom by himself in a forest and he's on his mule and he's riding his mule by himself and his head gets stuck in an oak tree like in the branches, but his mule keeps going. And so he's like just suspended in midair and his mule's gone and he's just hanging there. And then Joab finds him and Joab doesn't like Absalom at this point. And then Joab ends up killing Absalom even against uh, David's wishes because David still wants him to be restored. And so that's the end of the crazy son. The crazy son dies, but not until 
he reaped all kinds of havoc and hardship upon his family and upon the whole nation, right? This is, this is messy. This is messy. Now, God's rod part one and part two have both been carried out, and here's the question of all questions. Here's the question. Did the discipline work? Did the discipline work? Did God's fatherly dip discipline accomplish its purposes? Did David change? Did he learn his lesson? And I believe he did, and here's why. I believe when God's rod was finally resolved, we see David changing. And we see this in two primary ways. That David becomes softer, and he's not hard, and he's changing. And, and the first is this. David doesn't shake his fist at heaven. He's not mad at God saying, God, I know what I did, and I know that was messed up, but seriously, this? What are you doing, God? He doesn't do that. No, he, he knows that he's brought this upon himself, and now he must endure it, and that's what he does. He doesn't shake his fist at heaven. He, he trusts God. And secondly, David deals generously with his enemies. And I don't have time to get into all of this, but there's a few different people David runs into that are his enemies or that he would have every right to take out as he's on his way out when he's fleeing and he's on his way back, including Absalom, but he doesn't do that. He actually deals generously with all of his enemies. He doesn't try to get even with them or back at them, take things into his own hands. He just trusts the Lord with it all. So all the signs are there that David allows God's rod to do a full work in him for transformation and to bring the change that he needed. And guess what? It should be the same exact way for us today. It should be the same exact way for us today. See, 2 Samuel 13 to 20 should be a springboard for us to jump off and into what the whole Bible says about God and his good discipline for us. And the passage of all passages where this is clear, where this is crystal clear about God's fatherly discipline is found in the New Testament in the book of Hebrews chapter 12. So would you turn there with me in your Bibles? If you have a Bible, please turn there. It's gonna be also be on the screen, but Hebrews chapter 12 is towards the back of the Bible, starting in verse five. This is the fatherly discipline passage. That's gonna shed some light on all this for us. Hebrews 12, starting in verse five. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Right there, the author of Hebrews is quoting from the Proverbs. He's recalling that, calling that to mind. Verse seven, it is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we have respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. That's a good line. When we're going through discipline, it always seems painful. It never seems pleasant at the time. Nobody wants it at the time. 
but later it yields, it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. See, Hebrews 12, five through 11 shows us in, with the clearest lens possible, clearest lens, that God's discipline is a good discipline. God's discipline is a good discipline. And here's why it's good. Hebrews 12 tells us exactly why. God's discipline is good because, verse five, we need it. The author of Hebrews is saying, don't forget this, that God addresses you as sons and daughters, that you need discipline. You need this, don't forget this reality. God's discipline is good because, verse six, it proves that he loves us. God disciplines us because of his love for us, not because he hates us, not because he despises us, not because he's annoyed with us, it's because he loves us. Think about any good parent. They discipline their child because they ultimately love them. Sometimes we get annoyed, sometimes we kind of despise our kids for a second, you know, we're sinful. Not our heavenly father, he's perfect. And he's always doing it because he loves us. And that's what the text says in verse six. Verse seven and eight, it affirms that we are his children. It says, if you don't get discipline, you don't belong to God. You're not a legitimate child. But if you get discipline, it means you belong to God. You're his child. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a good thing? If we receive discipline, it means we belong to our heavenly father. And that's what verse nine says. It affirms that God is our father. God is our father. And see, God the father He's not a weak-willed parent. He's loving, yes, more, so, more loving than we could ever imagine. But he's not weak-willed. You know what a weak-willed parent is, right? The kids get away with everything. They're the ones calling the shots. The parents are always walking on eggshells around them. No, not God the Father. God the Father does not give us what we want. He gives us what we need. And aren't you grateful for that today? How spoiled and terrible and rotten would we be if we got every single thing we wanted? Would that not be like the worst thing ever? God gives us what we need, and that's what discipline's all about. And we know that because he's a perfect father. Okay, verse 10, it's for our good. I love that it says that. It's for our good. It doesn't say, you know, there's all these passages about God's glory. It's ultimately for his glory. But it doesn't just say it's for God's glory. It's saying, this is for your good, (laughs) I'm doing this for your good. I remember my dad would say that growing up when I got disciplined, you know, I'm doing this because I love you. I'm doing this for your good. And I'm like, yeah, right. (laughs) But he was, he was. And my girls don't get that either when there's a consequence. He's doing it for our good. And verse 10 also shares light on why. It says, because this discipline for our good allows us to share in his holiness. This is a really cool line, to share in his holiness. See, Christianity, our faith that we profess, the gospel, it is not about a holy God who says, go out there somewhere by yourself and make yourself holy, and then when you make yourself holy, then you can come to me and I'll accept you. No, the message of the Bible and the good news of the gospel is that God comes in to where we are at and he picks us up and he gives us loving discipline like a father would and he holds our hand through it. He doesn't abandon us. 
He comes to us so that we can share in his holiness, so that we can become like him. He wants us to become more and more like him, ultimately like his son, Jesus. Isn't that awesome news? That that's what God wants to do? He's not just giving us discipline for the sake of discipline. He's doing it for our good because he loves us and he wants us to become more and more like Jesus. That's his main prerogative. And that's ultimately what we want more than anything else, isn't it? Don't you want to become more like Jesus? Don't you want to trust God more as a father? He's doing it for our good. He wants us to share in his own very own holiness. It's amazing that the God Almighty, the God who made all things, would stoop so low so that you and I could share in his holiness. That's his goal. Lastly, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So I love this. It produces good fruit in our life, verse 11. In the end, we look back on it and we say, I am who I am because God did that in my life. It was not pleasant at the time. I didn't like going through that. That stunk. But now I see what God was doing and I am so grateful that he did that. It has produced in my life fruit that was never there before and never was gonna be if I would have been left on my own. That's what verse 11 says. So Hebrews 12, five to 11 is some really, really good news for us today, isn't it church? It's some really good news for us. See, God's discipline, I wanna make sure that this is clear for everybody. Discipline's different than punishment. They're different. Discipline is a necessary consequence that trains a person to not make the same harmful decisions and instead make better ones. That's what discipline is. It's a necessary consequence. It trains the person to stop making the same harmful decisions and make better ones. Punishment is just a rightful judgment and condemnation carried out on a guilty person. And this is an important distinction. Discipline is gracious because the person giving discipline, they love us and they're doing it for our good. Punishment is just getting what we deserve. Just, there's the consequence, you're condemned. Shouldn't have done that. Here's the consequence, pay it. Discipline exists inside of this committed covenant relationship with another person. Punishment is just rejection. But you know what's so amazing about all this? What should cause us to lift up our heads and our voices and our hands in worship is the fact that we all deserve to be punished by God. We all deserve to be punished by God. If you read the Bible, you, you can't walk away not knowing that. We don't deserve to have second chances. We don't deserve to belong to God. We don't deserve to be his sons and daughters. We deserve the punishment, but what causes us to worship is knowing that God sent Jesus as a substitute in our place to take the punishment so that we could be welcomed as sons and daughters. That is the good news. Isn't this awesome? So we're sons and daughters now because of what Jesus has done for us. And that means we don't have to fear punishment because at the end of our lives, when we die, God's not gonna say, all right, I have punishment to carry out on you. Or you have to be fearful of going to hell. Because if you believed in Jesus and what he's done for you, Jesus has already taken that judgment, that consequence, that punishment, that hell for you on the cross. So now you are a son, you are a daughter, 
and sons and daughters only experience loving discipline from time to time. Isn't that good news? So today, we have two choices. We can either resist God's discipline in our life, or we can receive it. So think about it this way. If we receive God's discipline, we'll also receive the change. But if we resist the discipline, if we stiff arm God, if we run away from him, if we don't want him to do this in our life, we're gonna also resist the change that God wants to bring in our life. So my job as a preacher today, as a brother in Christ today, is to persuade you and to persuade myself, may we receive God's fatherly discipline in our life so that we can also receive the change that he wants to bring in our life. Let's do that. Let's be a people who are about that and that realize what God's doing in our life when he's doing it. You know, this ties into my story really well. Um, I've told this in different ways, in different forms here out at Danville, but I've been a Christian since about uh, nine years old. And in late junior high, early high school, I started walking away from the Lord. I started doing my own thing and quenching the spirit in my life. I was on the downward spiral near the helicopter, like David. And I was living a double life. I remember I, I would go to youth group and I would go to church and I would go on mission trips and I loved all that stuff. I thought it was fun. But then I also had this other side of me who was living in sin and all kinds of stuff that the Bible says is not for my good and that God's not pleased with and hanging out with friends and partying and just living for myself. It was all about me. I had a bunch of idols in my life. It was all about status and popularity and girls and sports. I remember sports was a gigantic idol in my life. I played sports for the glory of Matt Mitchell, not for the glory of God at all. It's for, it for my glory. And my plan was to go to college and play football somewhere. And so um, on my very, very best day, I don't even think I could have walked on and been on the bench at a D2 school. And I don't even know about a D3 school, but I wanted to play college football, okay? That was my plan. I was gonna do that. And God said, nope, you're not gonna do that. And I didn't hear him say that, and I, but I figured that out later as I realized he was bringing his discipline into my life. And so December 2009 of my senior year, I um, am driving my car, and ironically, I was on my way to a church event. We lived in Wayland, and I was on my way to Washington, where our home church was at, Washington, Iowa. And I was driving my car in 1991, Dodge Dynasty, really cool car. Just kidding. My grandpa gave it to me. I love that car, but it wasn't cool. Um, and the roads were icy that night, and I was almost to Washington, and I started coming down this road, two-lane highway, and I lost control of my car and started spinning in circles to the bottom of this hill. And a big F-150 came up on the other side, and there's no way he could have stopped with the amount of time and the conditions. And so as I'm spinning out, he T-bones me on my passenger side, and my car just gets smashed in like a pop can to the point where the passenger side door crashed into all the way where I was at and I was pinned in my car because it hit me that bad. And I had uh, cuts all over me, windshield uh, was busted out, the car looked horrible and I broke my femur. And so I still have a titanium rod in my femur to this day. And I remember when this happened, um, 
God got my attention, but I wasn't very happy with God. I was pretty mad because I couldn't finish the basketball season and I wanted to run track. There would have been a few events I probably would have been decent in that year and I was getting stronger, but I ended up realizing that the surgeon that did um, the surgery and put the rod in there, he put one of the screws on the hardware in the bottom too far in so it was poking through the bone and hitting the ligaments on the inside of my knee. And I think God planned that as well. I think God was above that because I couldn't do track. And that also caused me, there's, there's no way I could have played football in the fall at any sort of college. And so later that spring, I ended up uh, going to a men's conference and rededicating my life back to the Lord. And that was completely unexpected, but that's what happened by God's grace. And then around that same time, I found out that I got into the Moody Bible Institute because I applied there and realized that that's actually where God wanted me to go to college. And they didn't have football. Um, they, they had like Frisbee, so intramurals, you know. Um, pretty exciting. Um, but I went to Moody and that was one of the biggest blessings ever in my life because at Moody Bible Institute, I met these other guys that were on my dorm floor. They were older than me, godlier than me, and they took me under their wing and they discipled me because um, I had no idea what I was doing. I had no idea how to follow Jesus at that point, but I was just learning. And at Moody is where I met my wife, Olivia, my junior year, which she's one of the biggest blessings in my entire life. And then, um, yeah, exactly. And then um, I ended up going to Louisville, Kentucky. That's where Olivia's from and worked a little bit and did a few different jobs, worked for Fellowship of Christian Athletes and loved that. And my parents started coming to Harmony uh, at the time I lived in Kentucky. They started coming to Harmony. Here's their home church. And so I ended up meeting Tim Svoboda, and Tim's a Moody grad and works here. He's our director of operations and kind of just started up a friendship with Tim from time to time. I'd, Olivia and I would come up here and visit and come to a service or whatever. And from a friendship with Tim is, and that connection, that Moody connection is how I ended up getting a phone call. And he said, hey, we're hiring. Would you want to come up and apply for this job we're going to have up, up here in Southeast Iowa at Harmony Bible Church? And went through that whole process. And so basically what I'm saying is I'm standing here today. I'm humbly standing here today with the opportunity to preach God's word. And I can trace that back all the way to me not getting my way my senior year of high school and going through God's loving discipline in my life when I got in that car accident. God was working all these things out. And I fussed about it when it was happening at the time, and I didn't like it, but God was doing something way better that I had no clue about. And I know some of you, all of us, have similar stories. All of us have similar stories where God, God has done something in our past where a door was closed, where something happened to us that we didn't want to happen, that caused us to go through a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, to kind of recalibrate and rethink about life that brought us closer to him. And we look back on those things, it leads us to have gratitude because in all of those things, God brings us closer to himself. And one quick caveat here, not all suffering we go through is God's discipline. I just wanna make that really clear. And that's also true in scripture. Sometimes it's just the hard knocks of life. We live in this fallen world where others sin against us or we don't have a clue. It's a mystery to us why this sin takes place and this suffering takes place. But typically it doesn't take too long to figure out that God was being a father to us in certain scenarios and he was disciplining us. 
And that's what this sermon is about today. So as we close, I just want to share a story with you, actually borrow a story, a metaphor that Jesus told. So John chapter 15 is this amazing account. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture. And it's right after the Last Supper. Jesus, they go out to the Mount of Olives and they're walking around. And it's before, right before the cross takes place. But Jesus is with his closest disciples. And he gives this metaphor as they're out in these vineyards, likely. And he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. So picture a grapevine produces grapes on the branches. Jesus says, I am the vine. I'm the one connected to the ground. I'm the source of life. I'm the vine. You're the branches. If you remain in me, if you abide in me, you're going to bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can't do anything. And then he introduces the father. And he says, the father is the vine dresser. The, the farmer, the one who tends the vines. And he says, the vine dresser, every, every branch in me that produces fruit, the vine dresser comes and he prunes so that it will produce more fruit. And if you know anything about a grapevine, the most fruit is produced, is close, the most fruit is produced when the branches are close to the vine, as close as they can get. The closer we are to Jesus, the more fruit we're going to produce. Not way, way out there on the trellis. So he says, the vine dresser comes in, he prunes every branch in me that bears fruit so that more fruit's gonna produce. And I remember hearing the president of Fellowship of Christian Athletes in Kansas City. I went there for a training one time and he was, pre- he was not preaching, he was just teaching a little devotion on this passage. And I'll never forget what he said. He made this comment. He said, the vine dresser is never closer to the branches than when he is pruning them. The vine dresser is never closer to the branches than when he is pruning them. Isn't that a great line? That God's doing this for our good, that he loves us, that he's doing this because we belong to him, that he has something better for us, that he wants us to share in his likeness, and he gets close to us And he does something painful at the time, but later it produces this great fruit, this great reward. The branches are pruned so that there will be much fruit, more fruit in our lives, more life, more joy, more peace, more compassion, more love, more Christ-likeness. That's what God wants to do in our life. That is his goal. And here's the question today. Will you and I let God do that work in our lives? Will we let God do that kind of work in our lives that he wants to do? Because if we allow him to, we will experience a great change.